in the Gospel according to Luke, Luke chapter 13, verses 22 to 35 is our text for today, Luke 13, verses 22 to 35. He went on his way through towns and villages, teaching and journeying toward Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? And he said to them, Strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Then you will begin to say, We ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. But he will say, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. When you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. And people will come from east and west and from north and south and recline at table in the kingdom of God. And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, Get away from here, for for Herod wants to kill you. And he said to them, Go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow, and the third day I finish my course. Nevertheless, I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following, for it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken, and I tell you, you will not see me until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Let's pray together. Lord, as we prepare to open up your word today, I pray that you would open up our hearts, that you would do a work within us. Lord, we know that a, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it be given him from heaven. And so I pray that you would pull our attention away from the things of the world, take our minds, which are, are prone to think low thoughts of you, and set them on your greatness and your glory. Impress upon us, Lord, the truths that we most need to hear in this hour. Yet I pray that you would help me to preach as a dying man to dying men is never sure to preach again. Lord, I pray that the Lord Jesus would be lifted up, that every soul in this room would be given ears to hear and eyes to see, and that Jesus would be magnified. And it's for his sake that we ask. Amen. Well, we find the Lord Jesus in our passage today on the way to Jerusalem. 
He is teaching through various towns and villages as he goes, but he is journeying inexorably toward Jerusalem. He is on a mission. He has a purpose that has been given to him by the Father, and nothing can stand in his way. That's going to be important as we work through this passage today. For a number of chapters, we have seen Christ expounding on the nature of the kingdom of God, unfolding its characteristics, teaching about uh, its citizens, what they are like, uh, telling would-be disciples about the cost of submitting their lives to him as king, the necessity of losing your life in order to gain it. Relating how the kingdom of God makes its inroads into the world like a mustard seed, like a little bit of leaven, something very, very small to associate the work of God with. Well, you can see how these kinds of lessons might have given rise to the kind of question presented in our text. You see it there in verse 22. As Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem, someone says to him, Lord, will those who are saved be few? You see how the reality of the cost of, the, of discipleship, leave the dead to be, to, 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 to be buried, to, to bury the dead, as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. He said, no one that puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. You see how the accumulation of all of these kinds of pronouncements sitting under the, te- the teaching of Christ would lead someone to think, well, it doesn't seem like very many are going to make it. It doesn't seem like very many are going to enter into the kingdom of God. Lord, will those who are saved be few? What a question that is to ask. Here is a man who calls on Christ as Lord He acknowledges something that that many people in the world in which we live refuse to acknowledge. They refuse to to grapple with the implications of Christ's teaching that mankind doesn't need uh, stand uh, in, in need of salvation. We are those who need rescuing. This man seems to grasp that. He seems to understand that apart from the hand of God, reaching out to him, reaching out in undeserved mercy to mankind that we are, we're ruined. We are hurtling toward eternal destruction. It's appointed unto man once to die and after that, the judgment. And we need rescuing. There's salvation in no one else. There's no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. But through Jesus Christ, all of this The man seems to affirm, and yet there seems to be an indication in the way that Jesus responds to him, in the way that Christ responds to this question that all is not right in the questioner's heart. And you can see the wisdom of Christ in this. This man, whoever he is, we don't know who he is. We don't know what his background is. We don't know why he asked the question. We don't know what his motivation for asking it was. But he asked whether the saved will be few. And what does Jesus do in response? 
Well, rather than entering into this philosophical exchange, he turns the question into a personalized warning. There may be an interest on the part of this individual in in dialoguing and dialoguing about what Christ has been teaching about, the nature of the kingdom, the judgment, a salvation, and so on. But as so often is the case, this man offers the question not as one desperately concerned about the condition of his soul, but as a distanced third party, as a neutral observer. Instead of, of identifying, for example, with the Philippian jailer uh, who, who sees the reality of impending judgment and is prepared to fall on his sword. And then Paul and Silas interrupt and he says, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Uh, This man doesn't do that. He doesn't come vexed over his own spiritual condition. He doesn't come concerned over whether he is personally numbered among those who are going to be saved. He doesn't come trembling, wanting to know about how he's going to be able to stand before the Father when the judgment comes. No, instead he comes speaking from what we might describe as this high-level theoretical vantage point. He looks at the things of God and the prospect of one's eternal destiny as an interested academic. He says, Lord, will those who are saved be few? Brothers and sisters, Jesus never gives theology lectures. Our Lord is never willing to let the truth of God, and the condition of the souls of mankind degenerate into curious speculation. Christ never does that. What does he do? He is always bringing the word of God to bear on the heart of man, to bear on the heart of mankind. And so so instead of focusing on these high-level questions like, well, how many will be saved? He turns things around. And he says, in effect, will you be numbered among them? In fact, if you look at verse 24, you see that rather than providing this direct answer, Jesus actually steers his listeners' attention to just how many are going to be lost. He says, strive to enter through the narrow door, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able Let those words ring in your ears today. Strive to enter through the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Now, church, the teaching here should not be pressed to say that there are a lot of people who sincerely desire to seek to come to Christ and are turned away. Or that they seek the kingdom of God and and his righteousness in the way that Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33 exhorts us to. That they they seek God with sincerity and wholeness of heart only to find themselves shut out. No. But they seek him. They, They expect to find entrance into the kingdom of God apart from faith and repentance. A classic biblical case study on this would be Esau. It's the very same same thing we see in him. 
Esau, the writer to the Hebrews, tells us was sexually immoral and unholy. He sold his birthright for a single meal. He failed to obtain the grace of God. And though he desired to inherit the blessing, the Bible says, he found no chance to repent, though he sought it with tears. Now, it wasn't the chance to repent that he sought with tears, but his father's blessing. And you can see this so vividly in the biblical account of Esau. You remember how uh, after Isaac discovers Jacob's ruse, uh, the scripture says Isaac trembled very violently and said, who was it then that hunted game and brought it to me? And I ate it all before you came and I have blessed him. Yes, and he shall be blessed. And as soon as Esau heard the words of his father, he cried out with an exceedingly great cry, great and bitter cry, and said to his father, bless me, even me also, O my father. You see, church here, the the point is not that Esau earnestly desired to repent and was prevented from doing so, but that he rejected God's grace to his own destruction. All of the sorrow he experienced was focused on the blessing that he lost, not the sin that he had committed. There was no inward turning of the heart to God and church. That's the, the great danger here. Many will seek to enter. They will, they will want a portion of the blessing. They will want what is on the other side of that door, but they will not be able to enter because they will not have come by way of faith and repentance. They do not come in repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And Christ's exhortation to this man, to put it in simple terms, is to quit worrying about how many are going to enter the kingdom of God. You just make sure you strive to enter yourself. You strive. Now why must we strive? Why must we strive? Because it's a narrow door. It's a narrow door. The way to enter the kingdom of God is to strive to go in through the the narrow door or the straight gate. It's not an easy entrance, in other words. It's one marked by constant struggle, by continual perseverance. The word strive is where we get the word agonize. Agonize to go in through the narrow door. Well, how is that done? How do you strive? How do you agonize? You do so by by clinging in faith to the crucified, buried, risen, and ascended Savior. 1 Timothy chapter 6 and verse 12. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. 1 Timothy chapter 4 and verse 8. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end... We toil and strive because we have set our hope on the living God. 
1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 25. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly. I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control. Lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Agonize, fight, labor fervently, make every effort, strive to enter, for many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. You know those people movers at the airport? The things where you just, you just step on and they take you to your desired destination? That is not how entrance into the kingdom of God works. Jews will not enter that door by virtue of their Jewishness. You will not enter because you were raised in a Christian household or because you've been baptized or because you're members of Grace Family Church or because you said a prayer. None of those things make you a Christian. Jesus paints a picture of us struggling our way through setting the eyes of faith on the Lord Jesus Christ, putting all of your hope in him while there's still an opportunity. Only those who do so, only those who trust in Jesus Christ for the remission of their sins and who go on to bear fruit in keeping with repentance will be saved. Not that they might earn their salvation. Remember what Jesus is doing. He's on the way to Jerusalem. Why is he going? He's going to die. He's going to die as a substitute for sinners who cannot earn their way into the kingdom of God. He's going to provide for a righteousness, not our own. Jesus says in Luke 16, the good news of the kingdom of God is preached and everyone forces his way into it. You see, there is still a holy kind of striving. There is a kind of holy violence that the gospel calls for, by which you repent of your sins and you lay hold of Christ. You do battle and you do so every day. You go on striving in this way, strengthened and established in the grace of God to be sure, but you go on striving, knowing that the one who endures to the end will be saved. To this Christ goes on and he says that the door which in the first place is described as narrow, will soon be shut. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, and you begin to stand outside and to knock at the door, saying, Lord, open to us, then he will answer you, I do not know where you come from. What is Christ emphasizing here again? It is the theme we have seen so persistently it's the theme of urgency. The Lord seeks to arouse sleeping, slumbering souls. There will come a time when the door to the kingdom of God will be slammed shut. And once that is the case, it will be too late. The door only opens from the inside. When Christ returns or the days that were written for you are over, there will not be another opportunity. Today is the day 
of salvation. Today is the day to strive to enter and to never cease from striving. Beloved, settle it in your heart today that you will, by God's grace, have no other objective in life, no other priority in this world but to enter that door that forgetting what lies behind, straining forward to what lies ahead, you will press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. How many put this off until tomorrow? How many wait until it is too late? How many put their hope in a deathbed conversion? They're always telling themselves there will be another time There will be another opportunity to do tomorrow what Christ says we must do today. When once the master of the house has risen and shut the door, you begin to stand outside and knock at the door saying, Lord, open to us. He will answer you, I do not know where you come from. Now, if you look at verse 26, you see those who are on the outside of the door, they begin to mount their defense. They give their objections, and and the foundation upon which they rest their confidence is so very instructive for us as we think about the foundation of our hope and where our, our confidence lies. Jesus says, then you will begin to say, we ate and drank in your presence, and you taught in our streets. What is their contention? They were people who had warm and frequent association with Christ. They were not strangers to him or to his ways. They ate and drank with him. They enjoyed table fellowship. They knew the fellowship of his company, at least in some regard. They were familiar with his teaching. They had they'd been partakers of his ministry. And it's on the basis of these things that they stake their hope. They look at their experience. They look at the history they have with Christ. And on that basis, they have a full expectation that the door will be opened to them. Now, I I want you to notice that Christ does not argue with them. Notice that Christ does not argue with them about the assertions that they make. He doesn't say, that any of those things aren't true. What does he say? Twice, he says, I do not know where you come from. This is the master of the house speaking to those who identify themselves as belonging to him, whether as family or as servants. But Jesus says through the door, I don't know you. I don't recognize you as a member of my household. Now hold that up to what Christ says in John chapter 10, I am the good shepherd, I know my own, and my own know me. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 19, Paul says, God's firm foundation stands bearing this seal, the Lord knows those who are his. Clearly, there are two kinds of knowledge in operation within this text. There is the, 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 the knowledge Christ speaks of, the knowledge he has of his own, an intimate, personal, a familial knowledge. It's a knowledge that is based on fellowship 
that comes through faith. Faith in and obedience to the Son of God. John 10 and verse 27, my sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. There's not just a passing acquaintance. There's a life that is patterned after the great shepherd of the sheep. And then there's the knowledge of those petitioning the master for entry into the house. What do we see there? Well, their knowledge of Christ was external. It was formal. It may have been very thorough in many respects, but it wasn't saving. They were acquainted with Christ, but they did not know him savingly. It was a knowledge of Christ that didn't have faith in Christ attached to it. Do you, do you realize there is such a thing? Do you realize that you can know of Christ, that you can even give assent to the truths of Christ, that you can be someone who would never deny the truths of the gospel and still not know him savingly? Why? Because you've never put your trust in him. You acknowledge the truth of the gospel, but you've never seen the application of the gospel to your own soul in a personal way. You've never believed on him from the heart that you might be saved from your sins, that you might be washed clean. And so Jesus says here, I don't know you as one of my disciples. I don't know you as one who has trusted in me, as one who has left all to follow me. Now the other is saying, well, of course you know me. We sat right next to each other when you came in for dinner in my town. Don't you, don't you remember? And they've contented themselves with this. They've contented themselves that for whatever reason, their, their interest in doctrinal matters, their attendance at worship, whatever it might be, that that would be reason enough for God to open the door to them. And I, I trust that you can see today how easy it is to be in this state of deception as to your relationship with Christ, to be convinced you have a place in the kingdom of God when it's not at all the case. Well, how are we to know then? Are we just left to wonder or to, de- to despair with nothing definitive by which we can make such a judgment? Certainly not. The Bible says examine yourselves to see to see whether you are in the faith or not. Test yourselves, and Christ helps us here. Christ helps us here in this matter. Look at verse 27. Again, Jesus says, I tell you, I do not know where you come from. Depart from me, all you workers of evil. And that last phrase is crucial here. They were workers of evil. That was what characterized their lives. That is the distinction. And so theirs was a head knowledge of Christ. It was a a knowledge that was devoid of faith. And because it was devoid of faith, it was unaccompanied by by that transformed life that springs from the work of God in the heart, the work of regeneration, that that work that results in love for God and obedience to his ways, a desire to please him. What a tremendous lesson there is for us in this passage as those who are so familiar with Christ's person 
and his work. We can insert ourselves into this text quite easily, I think. The Lord has come to our town, as it were. We have heard his teaching. We have eaten and drank in his presence. You have heard the word taught, some of you, for decades on end. But there is an inherent danger that comes with the regular association with the things of God. There's no other place you want to be, don't get me wrong, because there's no other place of blessing. There's no other place of salvation but to sit under the preached word of God. So praise God for that. Praise God that this means of grace has been extended to us. But there is also a danger and that you may begin to tie together your association or affiliation or, or familiarity with these things with a personal knowledge of Christ. You might begin to think that your presence here today or your outward attachment to the things of God or to the church bodes well for you in terms of your eternal home. Hear the word of the Lord Jesus today where he says to those who make the same kind of claim, I do not know where you come from. He says, depart from me, all you workers of evil. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth when you see Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and all the prophets in the kingdom of God, but you yourselves cast out. He says, there's going to be this great upset There will be this great surprise, weeping and gnashing of teeth for the Jewish people. That that brings together this picture of horrible anguish on the one hand and unceasing frustration and anger on the other. You remember how when when Stephen preached about the Jews' rejection of Christ, Christ, uh, how they betrayed and murdered the one who had been sent by the Father, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But this is a a gnashing of teeth that happens in the lake of fire. It's the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. Jesus says, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity, while Abraham and Isaac and Jacob sit at the great banqueting feast of the Lamb. Now, why will they be permitted in? By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. He was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Isaac invoked future blessings on Jacob and Esau. By faith, Jacob, when dying, blessed each of the sons of Joseph, bowing in worship over the head of his staff. And here, by faith, people will come from east and west, from north and south, and recline at table in the kingdom of God. You see the contrast here. You have Jews cast out, all nations brought in. Isaiah says, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples 
a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food full of marrow of aged wine, well-refined. In Isaiah 65, the Lord says, speaking to, uh, about the Gentiles who would one day be, be streaming into the kingdom, he says, I was ready to be sought by those who did not ask for me. I was ready to be found by those who did not seek me. I said, here I am, here I am, to a nation that was not called by my name. All this while Israel continued to rebel and continued to provoke the Lord to his face. So God says to them in Isaiah 65 and verse 13, Behold, my servants shall eat, but you shall be hungry. Behold, my servants shall drink, but you shall be thirsty. Behold, my servants shall rejoice, but you shall be put to shame. Behold, my servants shall sing for gladness of heart, but you shall cry out for pain of heart and shall wail for breaking of spirit. There was going to be this great reversal. This is what Jesus is talking about here in verse 30. And behold, some are the last who will be first, and some are first, who will be last. So mark this in your mind. As you think about your standing with Christ, as you consider the basis of your hope today, often it is the case that those who appear to be the closest may in reality be the furthest away. And those who seem least likely to come are in fact the ones brought near. Strive to enter. Strive to enter. Now, Luke ties this section with the passage that follows with the words, at that very hour, in verse 31. At that very hour, some Pharisees came and said to him, get away from here, for Herod wants to kill you. Now, some look at this and say, well, what you have here are a bunch of conniving Pharisees who are trying to throw Jesus off course. If Pharisees oppose Jesus most of the time, then surely they oppose him all the time. If most of the Pharisees oppose Christ, then surely all of the Pharisees oppose him. But the biblical picture isn't nearly so monochromatic as that. There are Pharisees, not many, albeit, but there are some who welcome Christ, who welcome him into their home, who align themselves with him, who intervene on his behalf, and I see no reason not to take this at face value. Here you have at least a few Pharisees who seem to side with Jesus, and they let him know about Herod's plan to kill him. Now, the important thing to see here is that Christ is given an opportunity that would allow him to escape the clutches of death. Anyone else would look at that as nothing less than a providential warning. Anyone else would look at a word like that as something for which to praise God and immediately take action upon. But Christ doesn't do that. What do we see in Christ? Christ is under a divine must. The Son of Man must 
suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And so what does Jesus say? He says, go and tell that fox. Behold, I cast out demons and perform cures today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I finish my course. Christ must finish his course. Why must Christ finish his course? Because atonement must be made. Satisfaction for sin must be offered up on the cross for guilty sinners by the spilling of his blood that we might receive forgiveness in his name. Christ must finish his course for us. The word finish here is a, is a key word. It's a key word in the New Testament. The third day I finish my course. This is what we see in, uh, back in, in chapter 12 where Jesus said, I have a baptism to be baptized with, that baptism of sufferings and death, you remember. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished until it is finished. It's what he said when, it, when, when, when he said, this, this scripture must be fulfilled in me. And he was numbered with the transgressors, with us. For what is written about me has its fulfillment. It's the idea behind Jesus' final words on the cross when he breathed his last. And he said, it is finished. Christ must finish his course and you see here there's no cowardice in our Lord there's no hint of trepidation there's just total unwavering resolve to fulfill the will of the Father praise be to God for the good of our souls and the glory of the Lord he must finish his course and he must do it in Jerusalem Why? For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. The Pharisees warned Jesus that that Herod is the one to watch out for. That he's the one looking to kill Christ. And Jesus actually begs to differ here. It's not that Herod isn't a threat. There's no reason to think that Herod didn't want Christ put to death. He was the one, after all, that beheaded John the Baptist. But the force of Christ's argument is that it is Jerusalem, not Herod, which is the epicenter of historic opposition to the redemptive purposes of God, as they were spoken by the prophets. Emblazoned in the city's legacy is this long saga of rejecting God's messengers, which is sadly ironic if you know what Jerusalem means. It's the city of peace. That's what the name means. And yet they persecute everyone that was sent to them. Zechariah, uh, the prophet Uriah, a host of, of others. Stephen in Acts chapter 7 says, You always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? Christ mentions stoning uh, in particular here. Stoning was the penalty assigned in the Old Testament for blasphemy. So in this way, Jesus is showing just how far removed the Jews are from discerning what God is doing in the world. 
They actually believe that he's on their side. And Christ laments this. He laments their spiritual blindness. He laments the fact that, largely speaking, his Jewish contemporaries failed to enter through that narrow door. They may be natural descendants of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, but they will shockingly find themselves separated from their forebears in the end. And that's a point of great grief to the Lord. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings, and you were not willing. You see the hospitality of the heart of Christ here. How often, how often would I have gathered you, and you weren't willing? God is often compared in the Old Testament to a bird under whose wings his people come. And take refuge. Psalm 57 and verse 1. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge. Till the storms of destruction pass by. How often would Christ have delighted to see the Jewish people come and run under the shadow of his wings to see them hide in the shelter that he affords, but they weren't willing. He was willing, and they were not beloved. Beloved, the, the, the call of the gospel is a, is a call that goes out to all, for all that would come, whoever comes to me, I will in no wise cast out, the Bible says. And all that the Father has given to the Son will come to him. God has appointed some to eternal life. You did not choose me, the Lord Jesus says, but I chose you, and that before the foundation of the world. No man can come unless the Father who sent me draws him. And yet, we are accountable. We are responsible. We're responsible to respond to the call of the gospel. God is sovereign and man is responsible. He has elected some to eternal life and if we reject him, the guilt will be ours. That may be mysterious to us, but it's not a contradiction. Chesterton said that a paradox is just a truth standing on its head in order to get attention. That's what we have here. It is not for us to try to peer beyond what God has revealed, but simply to act on the basis of what he has. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. The time is fulfilled. The kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. It was on account of the Jewish people's unwillingness to come to Christ that they found their house forsaken. And Jesus says, I tell you, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Some see this as an allusion to the triumphal entry. I don't believe that that is a sufficient fulfillment for this prophecy. The crowds that cried, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord during the triumphal entry, were not uh, the people of Jerusalem. They were Galilean pilgrims uh, coming into the city. 
Uh, the parallel passage in Matthew 23 also has Jesus saying this, you will not see me until you say, uh, he, he has, Jesus is saying this after the triumphal in- entry. Others understand this to be a, a reference to a later ingathering of Jews at the end of the age. The problem with that view is that he is preaching here to those who have rejected him and whose house is forsaken. He is speaking to those who are not willing to come under his wings. And so in its context, the words, you will not see me until you say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, falls right in line with all of the other warnings of judgment that we have already seen at the second coming of Christ. Verse 35 stands both as a warning and an exhortation, as if to say, if you wait until Jesus returns, it will be too late. You will join in in that confession, make no mistake about it, but it will be the kind of confession that a vanquished foe makes, not the kind a happy, willing citizen, one who has been gathered under the the shelter of Christ's wings, makes. And so if you would see Christ, put your trust in him and do so today. Strive to enter while the door is still open. 2 Peter chapter 1 and verse 10. Therefore, brothers, be all the more diligent to confirm your calling and election. For if you practice these qualities, you will never fall. Peter's just been saying, if you make every effort to supplement your faith with virtue and virtue with knowledge and knowledge with self-control and self-control with steadfastness and steadfastness with godliness and godliness with brotherly affection and brotherly affection with love. He's saying, in other words, what Jesus has said to us today, if you strive to enter the narrow door in this way, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we come and thank you for the word of comfort and conviction we have heard today. Lord, thank you that in Christ, our faith can find a resting place. Lord, that we don't need Any other argument, I need no other play. It's enough that Christ died and that he died for me. I pray that all of our hope would be found in him. Lord, I pray that you would grant us your grace, that we would be able to, by your spirit, with your help, fight the good fight of faith. Lord, impress the word we have heard today upon our hearts, I pray that we would be a church where we are ever fleeing from sin and to Christ, to the praise of his glorious grace. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.